Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Someone oh. needs a Snickers bar. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I was thinking it is really sad that we didn't eat our cheat meal together today. I was thinking that when you said that this morning, you were like, oh, today's Sunday, cheat day. And I've been looking like, forward to it all like, week. I was like, girl, every day has been cheat day for me this week. <laughs> like, it's not special this week because I have gone off the rails. So I was like, I guess it's cheat days <laughs> technically because <laughs> I'm still eating like a pig, but it doesn't have the same like you know, beauty that a typical cheat day would, would Desi, have. Desi checks, texted me right after, <laughs> right after I completely housed a cheeseburger and she was like, are we still going to the gym? <laughs> By the way, I was eating uh, onion dip with potato chips when I sent that. So I was like, I need to go to the gym. I mean, I think we were maintaining at least yeah. like, by going to the gym and you, picking out. We're not losing, what? but we're not gaining or like gaining less maybe. I really just, for me at this point in my life, exercise for my mental health is very important. Yes. Okay. So let's hear our patrons. All right. Anyway, thank you guys so much for donating to the show. This week we had Christy, Ed, Kimberly, Meg, Mariana, Abby, Ishan, Bree, Aaron, Callie, and Sarah. Thank you guys. We also wanted to give a special shout out to Stephanie Wilder Taylor. She is the co-host of a podcast called For Crying Out Loud. Her co-host is Lynette Carolla. And they gave us like a super, super nice shout out um, on J- their January 4th episode, I think. Yeah. It was like crazy because people were texting us like, you guys, like you're on the show. <laughs> They're talking about you for 15 minutes. Da, da, da. And it was just like very cool. So if you're into other people like us, they don't talk about crime, but they talk about parenting and living in LA and all kind of stuff like that. And they're very funny. You should check out that. People are always asking us for podcast recommendations. So definitely check out that show. Right, Rachel? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah. Do we have any other announcements or things we need to get to? No. Okay. That's it. I'm very excited about this episode today. Great. So This episode, I am doing a movie versus reality. It's one of my all-time favorite movies, and it's called Double Indemnity. Have you seen this movie, Rachel? Yes, and I love it. Yeah. So this movie is actually based on a true story, and it's the story of a woman named Ruth Snyder, who, along with her lover, Judd Gray, murdered her husband in order to be together, as well as collect a life insurance policy that had a sweet-ass double indemnity clause, which means you basically get double the money if the person dies in like a, an accident or sort of like unexpectedly, not like a natural causes, I think. The amazing thing about this story is that I don't think a lot of people know the, the real story, but it has been like the inspiration for numerous books and movies, not just Double Indemnity, but just like, well, at the first it was a book by James Kane, who's like a famous film, a famous noir kind of detective-y uh, novelist. The, fun, the interesting thing about this story, though, unlike the movies where Barbara Stanwyck is like super glamour girl, uh, these people are very everyday, unglamorous, like just working class kind of people. They got themselves into this major scandal because at the time, which is like the 20s, tabloid, we've talked about this with like the Fatty Arbuckle case. Yeah. Newspapers were just like dying to have these kind of tabloid stories. So they would exploit anything and everything they could get their hands on. Basically, one of the crime writers 
who like was writing about this case at the time, he called, he described the case as a cheap crime involving cheap people, Ooh. which I know he meant as an insult, but honey, like <laughs> I would love to be described that way. I would like get off on that so hard. If anything I did was described as cheap in like a disgusted manner, I would love it. Like that's my dream. Well, because that's like the people on Twitter who are like, you are very unladylike. Yes. I've had people who are like, you're vulgar and <laughs> inbred. <laughs> It's just like, thank you, honey. Like, um, <laughs> that's my new body. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, the other, I actually was like thinking of doing this case last month, but then I think when you did the wool burger, I was like, oh, it's a little similar, like the wife getting the guy to help yeah. kill the husband. So I put it off and I wasn't necessarily planning on doing it this month, but January 12th is actually a big anniversary in this case. Oh. So I'll get to that later. I won't give it away. It's not that big of a spoiler, but whatever. So I'll get to it later. So um, let's dive in. Ruth Snyder was born Ruth Brown in Manhattan in 1895. She came from a working class family, but had a lot of moxie and was determined to get herself a better life. She actually leaves school at the age of 15 and got a job working at the telephone company, which is such a like retro <laughs> career choice. Is that like with the with the little like things that yeah. you that you plug in? I just always picture like Lily Tomlin. There was, I like, do something too. Where she was like a, a I don't remember what like show. A telephone was that, like, operator Lachman or something. I can't remember, but she's like a telephone operator with like the earphones and like. The well, little I just plugs. imagine all those little wires and stuff. <clears throat> well, that's when it was like you know, um, what, 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 like Carson two four one. Like they're literally connecting phone people's <laughs> phone lines. Like, right. Like they have a tab with them all in. That's how I imagine it works. Anyway. So she gets this job at the telephone company, and then she takes night school where she's learning um, business and shorthand, which is also a very retro career choice. Yeah. Uh, because of her skill at shorthand, she gets a job working as a stenographer at Cosmo Magazine, Ooh. which has existed for a very long time. One day, while she's working entirely by chance, she dials a wrong number, and, and the number she calls is to a man named Albert Snyder. Now, Albert is in, like, a pissy mood when she calls, so uh, he had recently gone through a tragedy. He had been involved with a woman for 10 years. Her name was Jessie Goussard, and the two had become engaged, but she died of pneumonia only a short time before the wedding. Aww. So he's just, like, bitter. His his fiance had died, and he's just not in the mood for this fucking wrong number. <laughs> there is something about... I don't think anyone understands these days what a wrong number is even like i guess because you don't even answer your fucking phone but back <laughs> right. in the day it was like hello uh, no wrong number like and depending on your mood it could be very irritating right he goes off on ruth when she has this wrong phone call uh he like goes off on i used her. to call i used to prank call people all the time when i was oh, a really? kid i don't know i don't remember crank calling people but i used to call um party lines and pretend <laughs> did i tell you this I used no. to do it. I used to do it when I was babysitting and get in trouble. So because their their like they phone bill money. would have all these like party line. Like the thing I remember doing distinctly was calling like a gay man party line <laughs> and pretending to be a guy with my friend. <laughs> and that we started laughing at some point, and they were like, "Hang up! It's a couple of dykes." <laughs> they did that was, yeah, that. they did. I was like, "We're not dykes. We're just assholes." <laughs> I would also call the sex lines just to hear the preview of it. Right. Because I thought the preview was funny because it would always, the previews were always so funny. It was always like, 
we're hot and steamy. Right. And you're trying to like, cl- you cut, cut the phone call before it starts charging. Or right. Something. Yeah. But as a kid, you think it's a fucking hilarious. Right. Anyway. So he goes off on Ruth for this accidental phone call and Ruth being a woman quickly apologizes <laughs> for what? Like she made a mistake. Fuck him. Right. So he kind of feels bad eventually. And he says, he's sorry for being a dick or whatever they would say in the twenties. <laughs> I'm sorry I was coarse. Yeah. The two start chit-chatting, and then she calls him again the next day, but not on accident now. They kind of hit it off a bit. This is a real Nora Ephron situation. Um, They finally meet in person after a few days, and Albert is um, charmed by Ruth. Like She's just supposedly a very vivacious, charming personality. At the time, he was the art director for a magazine, wait for it, Rachel... (laughs) The magazine is called Motorboating Magazine. Stop it. (laughs) Can I just say my level of maturity? Like, I couldn't even write that down without fucking laughing so hard because I was like, I can't wait to tell Rachel the name of this magazine. Motorboating Magazine. It's like, have do these people not have Urban Dictionary back then? Wait, it was a reel about motorboats? Yeah. <laughs> a magazine all about motorboating. <laughs> you couldn't call a magazine that, no. that these days. No. Come on. I'm, so, I'm, surprised, <laughs> I'm surprised that there's still a gas station called Come and Go. I had to stop myself from like thinking, like, when did motorboating become a term? Like right. A sexual term? Did you go on a whole other sleuth? I, I was too busy Googling other <laughs> shit. <laughs> so motorboating magazine and he gets ruth a job at motorboating <laughs> magazine <laughs> she's a secretary can you even imagine if motorboating is a term at this time this poor woman was probably hearing it nonstop, right <laughs> so the pair eventually began kind of for real dating yeah um and in 1915 they got married albert was 32 and ruth was only 20 years old so ruth Come on, honey. Wow. I mean, I guess it's less of an age difference back then. Was more I don't typical, know. But that's like, come on. Look, I there was someone on 90 Day Fiance who, there was, I'm sorry, there was someone on this last season of 90 Day Fiance who was 19 and the uh, guy was like 32 and it's like, I'll be honest, what do you have in common? There's like, nothing. He's like my age and she, like, I cannot Here's imagine. what they have in common he can't make a woman come and she doesn't know she's supposed to come. <laughs> That's their commonality. But like she was born like while the internet was just like a thing and like a part of everyone's everyday life. If you're an adult, you can't fuck someone born in the 2000s. I'm sorry. Like it's just, there's no way. Like yeah. if you're in your thirties, you can't fuck someone born in 2000s. The generation gap is too severe. It's very severe. So, Ruth quits work to become a housewife, and in 1917, she becomes pregnant, and that is where the shit starts to really hit the fan. I mean, I guess that's pretty common in marriages when a kid comes into the picture. Um, But making matters worse is, like, Ruth was really excited about the baby, and Albert had no desire to have children. It's like, don't put a fucking condom on her. Like, do something about it, bitch. He eventually gets on board with it because he thinks, oh, well, of course we're going to have a son, Guess what? They didn't have a son. They had a daughter. And he was openly unhappy about the fact that he had a daughter. What is wrong with this guy? Fuck you, Albert. (laughs) The daughter's name is Lorraine. And 
their incompatibilities just started becoming more and more obvious. Yeah. Albert is an introvert and Ruth liked to kind of party. I mean, they're different ages. Yeah. So I feel like that's typical even today. Totally. Um, Albert has a short fuse, and he never got over his ex that died, Jesse. He was constantly comparing Ruth to Jesse and not (gasps) in a good way. Wait, like outwardly? Yes. Like saying, (sighs) oh, like Jesse would have never. Jesse's meatloaf was always perfectly moist and never dry. (laughs) You know what? Fuck Jesse. He would also constantly call Jesse the finest woman he had ever met. What? Can you imagine? That guy... He would have been dead sooner if I was his wife. <laughs> Ruth let him get away with some bullshit. He even had an oil painting of her hanging in their no, house. No, that's too far. Yes. And he named his motorboat after her. <laughs> <laughs> the Jesse. How dare you? How dare you? That's a bridge too far, Albert. <laughs> the motorboat? Motorboating is our thing. <laughs> so... In 1923, they buy a house in Queens Village, and around the same time, Ruth's dad dies, and her mom, Josephine, moves in to kind of help out with the baby. She almost immediately notices that the marriage is fucking shit, and she actually tells Ruth to get a divorce, which I have to imagine is pretty rare at that time for the mom to to tell her daughter to get divorced. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's probably how an indication of how horrible their life was at home. Ruth actually declines her mom's advice and instead opts for another way to make things palatable. She has her mom there basically as a full-time live-in babysitter, so she starts taking the train into Manhattan and partying and getting wasted with a group of friends. Uh, And, I mean, it's like prohibition, so they're, like, doing bootleg gin and, like... That's a great time to party when it was illegal to drink. I'm only imagining. Yeah, so she starts going in the city and getting having some fun. Now, there are rumors that Ruth also started fucking around with several men at this time. One night she goes into the city with her group of friends and they set her up on a blind date with a man named Judd Gray. They go to a restaurant called Henry's Swedish Restaurant, (laughs) which sounds amazing. (laughs) I imagine it's like Ikea food, but like maybe fancier. (laughs) Look, Swedish meatballs are good. I like Swedish meatballs. I had to make you Swedish meatballs. I make them so bomb. Like they're so good. I mean, I just like anything... Any kind of dish that comes with gravy, I'm into. And it's really good on top of, like, egg noodles. Oh, my God. It's so good, Rachel. That sounds good. Um, So she meets this guy, Judd. He's also married with child at the time. And they really bond over their mutual hatred of their spouses. They eventually, that, you you know, that sort of mutual hatred of their spouses turns into a physical relationship. Ruth is, like, tall and blonde, and she's, you know, good-looking. She's not, like, a bombshell or anything like that, but she has a great personality. Um, And Judd is definitely more... He's short. He's sort of a forgettable look. Can I see pictures? Yeah, but I don't have them pulled up. Can you pull them up? Pull them up on your phone. Okay. Um, What's his... How do you spell his... Judd Gray, and her name is Ruth Snyder. He has big glasses, and he's described as having a perpetual look of surprise. I mean, this is not a hot couple per se like you know what i mean they're sort of is this him <laughs> henry it says henry j gray yeah that's him why but is he this... doesn't have the glasses on but in that look picture. at his first name it says henry oh it's henry but it's... it says henry <laughs> <laughs> okay rachel <laughs> i'm not in charge of google <laughs> maybe his name is henry wait this lady isn't hot let me see you know what she just looks pissed and i don't blame look, her she's angry no 
Is that her? But she's not. That's her mugshot. Okay. Maybe she cleans up. I have no idea. Uh, I'm just saying she's described as. Look, from the thumbnail, it looks like. The a, fact that she's in her early 30s in that mugshot is not. It's not very like. I mean, she looks like she's easily in her 50s, but it's a different time. Yeah. People weren't getting Botox from the age of 20. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they start fucking like animals like they are getting it on they first fuck at judd's office where he is a salesman at the bien jolie corset company wow wow Um, i love this scene um they then began meeting up in manhattan hotels and he even comes to her house in queen's village when albert is out of town or at work they have nicknames for each other Judd is called Bud and Lover Boy, and he calls Ruth Momsy. Okay, Wait, Bud, Bud. They couldn't get enough of each other, and they even start fucking like, like they do things like where Lorraine is off at school, they'll fuck. Sometimes they take her to the hotel, leave her in the lobby, and go upstairs and fuck while the little girl and she's like nine, like she's young. So they'll leave her in the lobby of a hotel while they go upstairs and fuck. I mean, that is pretty brazen. That is brazen. So. Ruth quickly changes from like just a sex obsessed like housewife into a woman who has some plans to fucking take out her husband. She is bored in her loveless marriage and she tries to convince Judd that her husband is mistreating her and has to be killed. Like there's only one way out for her. Gray um, initially objects to this. Obviously, I feel like that's probably something you have to convince someone. <laughs> I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, but she like really pushes it. And according to him, she's really demanding that he do this. She would kind of soften things, um, by using those terms of endearment, like, come on, Momsy wants her husband. <laughs> come on, lover boy. Like she does all of that kind of stuff. Like, yeah. Oh, don't you want to make Momsy happy? She, is so persistent that Gray claims he started drinking more because he couldn't take the pressure of her constant demands to do this. Did she put on a corset at his corset yeah. factory? <laughs> Come on, tighten it for Momsy. He's just like drinking this fucking prohibition liquor like it's going out of style to kind of deal with this situation, according to him. So at some point, they uh, like they're versions of what happened obviously like later down the line differ wildly like who was the sort of person pressuring things one thing that ruth is sort of always sort of given credit for is sort of like really laying the groundwork even though they don't know who how it all kind of went down she's the one who apparently made sure that albert had life insurance in place and persuaded the insurance agent who later by the way was like had his own criminal things like he was charged with forgery to increase the coverage to $48,000 across three separate policies without Albert's knowledge. The insurance had the special clause that I mentioned earlier, the double indemnity clause that would pay out twice the amount, so $96,000. And in today's money, that would be about a million dollars. Wow. So this is like a pretty big insurance policy. Now, in the trial, Judd will claim that Ruth had made several independent attempts to murder her husband before she came to him for help. Oh. These included engineering gas leaks while he was asleep, knocking the jack out from under his car while he was under it, (laughs) and closing the garage doors while his engine was running so he would get, like, carbon monoxide poisoning. Albert survived all of these without even knowing like they, that they weren't accidents. Like he never suspected his wife was doing anything. Can you imagine that many? Like, whoa, Jesus. that was another close call. 
<laughs> Another close call for me. That's like in Adam's Family Values when uh, Joan Cusack keeps trying to kill oh, right. Uncle Fester. Totally. So I guess that's another movie inspired. (laughs) Um, She also allegedly put rat poison in his coffee, but that only gave him indigestion. Um, When friends would inquire about Albert's health, (laughs) she... It's pretty funny. (laughs) Ooh, I got a tummy ache. (laughs) Too much coffee. That's like the worst one to fuck up because then you have to deal with your husband's diarrhea all week. Right. By the way, like this is completely off topic, but today Andy Richter tweeted the grossest thing that I can't stop thinking about it. Someone said something like, oh, I just want to have someone to love me enough that they hold up my pubes or they hold my pubes back when I diarrhea. Ew. <laughs> I know. It was a gross tweet. Ew. And it was like one of those accounts that's gross. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And Andy at replied them, that's what chip clips are for. <laughs> about it because i was like oh. i honestly can see that i was like that is so gross andy like how long are people's pubes that that's a problem i don't think it's really a problem no i know okay. but it's just gross <laughs> the whole thing was a mess so anyways i don't know if he had diarrhea um she also starts planting the idea amongst her friends that albert's in declining health like oh his health is very bad so they can ex- so that if something happens she's just like kind of planting these seeds right um that he's not very healthy um but he was pretty invulnerable to everything she threw at him this guy would not fucking die he's like rasputin of bad husbands <laughs> he's just not dying so apparently after all of these failed attempts on her own that's when she kind of brings judd into the picture to help him yeah. uh, to help her and he eventually relents and decides that he will help her. Okay. So on Saturday, March 19th, 1927, it's a cold day on Long Island and Gray spends most of the day drinking to get the nerve up to do what he has to do. Uh, He and Ruth have made this plan that um, he's going to travel to New York from Syracuse and then by bus to Queens Village, and then he's going to sort of wait around for them. They're at a party that night, and he's going to wait around for them in a spare bedroom for them to come home from this party, and that will be the start of this murder. He, like, shows up early, and he's literally on the street drinking out of a flask. Oh, man. And people are like, he's so obvious that it's almost like he wanted to get arrested for public drinking. So he can get so out of this? So he can get out of this. Um, but he doesn't get arrested and he enters the Snyder's home. He comes in through a back door as they had kind of planned and he waits for them to come home from this party. And it's like late, late in the night when they come home, he hides in a spare bedroom where Ruth had left a window weight, a rubber, rubber gloves and chloroform that they're going to use to murder Albert. So window weight, by the way, it's just like this. It's hard to describe because I don't know exactly what they're for, but it's like it's like the dumbbell, but without the fat parts on the ends. It's yeah. just like this heavy bar that I guess held windows down or something. I'm not quite sure. I should have looked it up, but whatever. I didn't do it. I just assume you guys are smarter than me. <laughs> um, so he's like in this room waiting for them to return. She and Albert arrive at um, 2 a.m., she actually opens the door when they get back a crack and says, are you in there, bud, dear? Uh, she, wait, while her, <clears throat> wait, while her husband's like behind her? Well, not right behind her, but he's like gone to the bedroom and she's like, hey, are you in, oh. in here? So he, she goes back to the bedroom and she eventually returns to this room where he's waiting, wearing only a slip 
and they fuck. <gasps> they fuck while the husband is still is sleeping in the oh bedroom. Oh my god! So it's like they fuck before they murder him. I love how horny they are. Like that There's, is horny. That like, is next level horny. So um, after they fuck, they go downstairs and have some drinks and chat about the rest of their plan. <laughs> So after about an hour, Judd grabs the window weight and Ruth leads him to the master bedroom where Albert is sleeping with blankets pulled up over his head. The two of them stand on opposite side of the bed and Gray raises the weight and brings it down clumsily onto Snyder's head. The blow is like weak. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Why is this whole thing like slapstick? Because they're literally the dumbest people ever. It kind of glances his skull and wakes him up, obviously. (laughs) He lets out a roar and tries to grab his attacker. Judd becomes terrified, and he lets out a scream. Momsy, Momsy, for God's sake, help. I'm sorry. (laughs) Momsy. Can you imagine being murdered and hearing that? It's like, kill me. I can't deal with this anymore. Ruth is like... Very calm and collected. (laughs) So she's like almost disgusted with Judd. She grabs the weight from Judd's hand and crashes it down on her husband's skull. Then the pair sedate him with a chloroform chloroform soaked rag. Once he's unconscious, they get this like picture wire that I saw a picture of it. I'll post it on the Facebook group. It's like a picture wire that has two huge nails at the end and they kind of garrot him yeah like so it's like the John Bonet thing like they twist it and just literally strangle him to death although I don't know if they needed to but they were just being safe because I think the head blow was pretty massive well this is certainly not looking like an accident right well um once Albert was dead they decided to stage it to look like a robbery Rachel so oh. <laughs> nice try um They hid Ruth's jewelry box inside the house to make it look like a burglar had taken it. And then Judd tied up Ruth and gagged her and he left. And they probably fucked while she was tied up. (laughs) Because it got, it was a turn on. Yeah. (laughs) Look, you can't ask me to tie you up and then not want to fuck you. She gives Judd a few hours to escape. And then the bound and gagged Ruth starts banging on the wall and wakes up her daughter. The daughter had not wakened woken up at oh my god the daughter is there so the nine-year-old daughter finds her mom in the hall and she loosens the gag from ruth's mouth and ruth tells her to run to the neighbors or, or run to the phone and phone the neighbors they call uh the neighbor a, a man named lewis Molhauser, and he arrives and unties ruth she tells him that burglars had struck her on the head and tied her up Lewis finds Albert's body in the bedroom and he calls the police. When the police arrive, Ruth tells them that she had overheard noises in the hall and had gone out to find two men in the hallway, one of whom grabbed her neck and struck her head. And then she says she remembers nothing after that until she awoke tied up and had to wake up Lorraine. All she could tell the police about the men that had attacked her was one was very tall with a mustache and that they looked Italian. (laughs) Jesus. It was the Mario brothers. It's it's the Mario brothers. (laughs) Even though the pair had believed they had planned a pretty perfect murder, the police officers weren't that convinced that what they were hearing from, from Ruth was what actually happened. Beauty should be good for you. And that's why we're excited to tell you about beauty counter. Beauty Counter is a clean makeup and skincare brand that started in 2013, disrupting the beauty industry by shedding the light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care products that we use daily. 
Today, Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand creating innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner than even their like-minded competitors. So what do we mean by clean? Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in Beauty Counter's formulations. They call this their never list. You can learn more at beautycounter.com, where you're also going to want to check out their incredible products. Best of all, if you're a new customer and you order through March 15th, you'll get free shipping on your order of $100 or more when you use the code HOLLYWOOD. Once again, to get free shipping on your order of $100 or more, go to beautycounter.com and use the code HOLLYWOOD. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, getting out of it is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. Thankfully, now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high-interest credit card debt. I know firsthand that there's nothing more frustrating than trying to pay something down and your payments are pretty much just paying off the interest. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. The best part? Once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or meet their financial goals. So free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is top-ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash Hollywood to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash Hollywood. Oh, mm-hmm. The police first became suspicious when they found the jewelry box that had been stolen. I was going to say. Because it was hidden in the house, and it was like, hey, what's this doing there? Like, Because obviously the robbers would probably take it with them and not right. hide it to come back later. Um, the next sort of breakthrough that came to the detectives they found a paper with the letters jg on it now it was actually a memento that albert had saved from his former lover jesse gouchard and when they asked ruth about it she became very flustered and she said to them um what did what did judd gray have to do She immediately thought it was Judd Gray's initials. So she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Judd Gray, what, what does Judd Gray have to do with anything? And the police were like, Who's we that? never said anything about Judd Gray. <laughs> so now they're like, wait a minute. They were suspicious, like, from that moment. So Ruth does not really play anymore. Like, she basically almost confesses instantly at this point, and she blames everything on Judd Gray. Oh. Now, Judd Gray at this point is already in his hotel in Syracuse, which is quite far yeah. from Long Island. Cops come to his room in Syracuse, and he instantly is shrieking his innocence and insisting that he was not in New York, and he had an alibi, Rachel, because he had had letters being sent to Syracuse that proved he had been there the whole time. What? Now, cops were instantly like, Hey, we read those dime story detective novels too. We know how it works where you send letters to yourself so it looks like you have an alibi. Like this was his alibi. Like that Also that is the dumbest alibi. It doesn't prove anything ever because it's not like a letter can prove you were there. 
Right. It just proves someone sent you a letter. Now, making matters even worse for Judd is that when the police were interviewing him in his hotel room, they pulled out a train ticket stub that he had tossed in the trash can. Stop <laughs> this it. This hotel room that was from Manhattan to Syracuse <laughs> so that just, day of the murder. He just balled it up and put it in the trash. Yes. He didn't even like eat it. Like, come on, Judd, let's get it together. So the police at this point now have both Judd and Ruth in custody. And they kind of lie to them because there's not really like a lot of police like rules <laughs> at this time where you have to get the lawyer and there's no Miranda rights at this time. So they tell them both that the other person has already confessed. So at that point, neither one of them have a lawyer. They're falling all over themselves to blame the other person for everything that has happened at this point. The story of this murder was almost immediately a major news story. People were going apeshit over every detail. And at the, at the time, like the newspapers weren't even like, they were printing anything, like any fucking rumor they would print. They didn't care if it was true or not. So there was a ton of fucking rumors going around. Uh, people like Dorothy Parker and mm-hmm. Oscar Levant were fucking riveted by this case. And there's a famous quote by Dorothy Parker who like was talking to Oscar Levant. He's like asking about uh, the crime. Uh, one of the details in the crime is that Judd takes a taxi from Long Island to Manhattan uh, after the murder, and then he takes the train to Syracuse. So he thought he was really clever. According to Parker, he said not to attract, or she said not to attract attention. He gave the driver a ten cent tip, <laughs> which is an insanely low tip even at that time. Right. So that was his idea of like not caught. Like the driver was immediately like, "Yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> I know that fucking guy. He gave me a ten cent tip. Like." Right. Just give a fucking normal tip and you wouldn't have been noticed. Right. Like going overboard or cheap. These people are so bad at being criminals. Really bad. So the tabloids basically turn these two into like sensational figures. Like yeah. I've said before, they're just everyday people. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but they, they become these like iconic, like, you know, he, Snyder is totally turned into this femme fatale. The tabloids describe her as a synthetic blonde murderess, a vampire wife, and my favorite, Ruthless Ruth, the Viking <laughs> a- ice matron of Queens Village. <laughs> wow. So they really up the like interest level of these two people. Now, Gray starts just speaking to the tabloids regularly, and he paints himself as a victim. Before the trial even begins, he starts describing his affair with Snyder to the Daily News. He says things like, she would place her face an inch from mine and look deeply into my eyes until I was hers completely. While she hypnotized my mind with her eyes, she would gain control over my body, slapping my cheeks with the palms of her hand. <laughs> Damon Runyon, who was like a, a big news guy at the time, he, he describes Ruth and Judd as inept idiots. <laughs> and he calls the whole thing, and it sort of becomes known as this, the dumbbell murder, which I always thought was because they used a dumbbell, but it's actually because they were so dumb. That's Are you why. serious? Yeah. The dumbbell murder. <laughs> the dumbbell murder because they're uh, too fucking dumbbells. You don't want to be, you don't want your crime to be known as that. Right. Unless you kill it with a dumbbell. Right. But it was a window sash weight. Um, so the trial begins in May of 1927 and obviously is a huge fucking OJ level, crime of the century uh, level trial. The gallery is packed with aspiring writers who are desperate to like get details for our stories. And there's like celebrity reporters. There's celebrities there, including, um, DW Griffith and Amy Semple McPherson. 
uh, who would be a great show at some point. And then, like I said before, James M. Kane, he's actually in the courtroom every day covering this trial. Amy McPherson, she goes on to write about it for a thing called the New York Evening Graphic. Obviously, like after this, she's involved in her own scandal, but she's like very moralistic at this point, and she's trying to encourage young men to say, "I want a wife like a mother, not a red hot cutie." Well, <laughs> so she's using this case to be like, "You need to get like a good girl like your mom, or you're gonna get with like a, a Ruth Snyder." But he called her mommy. Yeah, mom. Hello, she's momsy, <laughs> Amy. They're sort of only hope of avoiding being executed is to completely throw the other person under the bus. So they continue that strategy full tilt into the trial. They are tried together, but they have separate attorneys during the trial. Interesting. Um, so, so Ruth's lawyer states that her husband is to blame because he drove love from the house by longing for his long lost girlfriend, Jesse. He also says that gray is the one who tempted her by setting up the double indemnity insurance policy she was a loving wife, her attorney assist, insisted, and it was not her fault about the conditions in her home. She actually goes on stand and does the, the full-on wronged woman. Uh, she's wearing a, a simple black dress, and she's wearing a rosary. She just plays the role of the suffering wife to the hilt. She tells of how her husband ignored her all the time, except when they went to the occasional movie. She, she even says that she used to read from the Bible to her daughter, Lorraine, and had made the girl attend Sunday school. Uh, they kind of gloss over her romance with Judd, and she she says that the affair happened because Judd had not been happy at home. Uh, also, like, it's not really her fault. He kind of pressured her. She was never looking for that. He was the one looking for it. She also claims that it had been Judd who had dragged her to speakeasies and night spots, and she would watch him drink himself into oblivion. She said she rarely ever drank, if at all. She also said that Judd insisted she take out the heavy insurance policy on her husband. She told the court, once he even sent me poison and told me to give it to my husband. So she's blaming him even for the attempted murders that he claims she did. When she's saying all this, by the way, Judd is sitting at the table with his lawyers and like, like literally like whispering to them and shuffling like, papers. I didn't do that. Like, I didn't do he's that. Like, oh, no, no. Like, he's doing that whole fucking uh, panic or like, that's ridiculous. So he also takes the stand and his, his tactic is like, he's this guy who is a good guy. Um, uh, Judd's lawyer describes his situation as the most tragic story that has ever gripped the human heart. He says that Judd is a law abiding citizen who had been duped and dominated by a designing, deadly, conscienceless, abnormal woman, a human serpent, a human fiend in the disguise of a woman. Wow. <laughs> he then adds that um, Judd had been drawn into this hopeless chasm. 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 chasm? I don't know how to say things. Uh, when reason was gone, mind was gone, manhood was gone, and when his mind was weakened by lust and passion. This is like a major point of contention for me. Like the press coverage of this is so sexist. Uh, Judd gets a ton of sympathy from the press right. because of what happened to him. Like they really play up that she is this vixen who like she lured him. him into this. Uh, and he definitely milks that when he, like he has his mom, his elderly mom sitting in the courtroom next to an actress from the time named Nora Bays, who I don't know who she is, but he always looks over at his mom while he's testifying he says that when she, she he found out she put knockout drops in his drink 
and that of all the failed attempts, like trying to gas him, et cetera, he says, I told her that she was crazy. I said to her that it was a hell of a way. Oh, he, he said she gave the poison as a cure for the hiccups and it made him violently ill. And he said, I said to her that was a hell of a way to cure hiccups. He also added that the two other times when Ruth tried to kill her husband with sleeping powders... Oh, sorry. He said that. he She she did that. He also stated that um, Ruth had been the one to take out the insurance policy, and it had not been his doing or idea. He also described how she was the one who struck the death blow the night of the murder. Because um, he was too incompetent to do it. <clears throat> exactly. At that point, Ruth begins to sob loudly in the courtroom, and the judge glanced meanly in her direction. I mentioned before there was this double standard in the press. It was really like the press at this time loved tearing down an evil woman, uh, and they really sh- they like they like tore her to shreds. One paper even went so h- far to hire a phrenologist to look at a f- photograph of Ruth and and sort of diagnosed her based on this photograph. According Weird. to him, he said the character of a shallow-brained pleasure she- seeker, accustomed to unlimited self-indulgence, which at last ends in an orgy of murderous passion and lust, seemingly without a parallel in the criminal history of modern times. That's how he diagnosed her, based on a, a photograph. Even the detectives in the case who interrogated both of them, they would all tell reporters that Judd was a likable uh, guy, and the press started like imitating that they would always call him a decent fellow a good family man so yeah because they were both cheating and his cheating was never really even talked about but hers was constantly like held against her right he was also married right so i mean it was just like a very classic thing where the woman's sexual wiles are shamed and looked down upon whereas the guy is sort of like an innocent victim to all of this he described their relationship as being hypnotic coercion and that when she would get her way with him, he just acted as an automaton, automaton, like, like, so he has no agency at all. Yes. I mean, that is some powerful, stupid, that is some powerful pussy. His lawyer would say in the courtroom, that woman, like a poisonous snake, drew Judd Gray into her glistening coils and there was no escape. Well, maybe she, he was drawn into her glistening coils, (laughs) but he's still a grown ass man who's able to make his own decisions and didn't have to help her. Of course. I think they're both fucking guilty. Of course. So obviously it's one thing to have the press on your side, but you still have to convince the jury The judge said to the jury, like his instructions for them when they went off, if they believe that Ruth had been forced into the crime or that Judd had been drunk and had not been in control of himself, then they could return a verdict of second degree murder. If not, they had to find them guilty of first degree murder. The jury was out for only 98 minutes before coming back with a verdict of guilty of first degree murder for both of them. Wow. Both defendants were stunned by the verdict, and they were even more stunned when they learned that their sentence for the crime was death penalty. (gasps) So Ruth actually takes the sentencing very calmly. She probably, like people speculate, that she thought they would never actually execute her. The last execution for a woman had been 28 years previous in New York, but the calmness of course, that she exhibited was taken as even more evidence that she was just a cold-blooded, witchy, you know, right. <laughs> whatever, femme fatale. In her cell, uh, after the verdict, she starts really saying what she considers the truth. Like, apparently she had held back slightly because her lawyer was saying, you want to look like a good person. Right. Uh, at this point, she kind of lets it all out. 
She said that Judd actually was threatening to tell her husband if she broke off their affair and that she was scared of losing her daughter in the divorce. Her husband was constantly mentally cruel to her and that had been what had driven her into the arms of another man. Her story even matches sort of the evidence better than Judd's story because he was actually the one who bought the murder weapon and he had arranged the whole alibi thing in Syracuse. So he wasn't just someone who was following along. Like he was participating right. in this plan and in he, a very active And he way. wanted some of the money too, probably. Right, because if they were together, he's going to benefit from this policy. But I don't know if it would have made a difference in the trial. If she had said more of this stuff, they probably wouldn't have bought her story of being abused. I kind of buy it. I'm not saying she shouldn't have been convicted, but it seems very likely. I'm sure she was unhappy in her marriage. Um, From the sounds of this guy, it sounds like he wasn't that great to live with. But like I said, it was this very conservative period of America. I mean, I guess it kind of is still. Um, And this adultery thing really just got under people's skin that she had the nerve to commit adultery. Um, I read something that at at some point, like in England, a woman killing her husband was considered to be guilty of petty treason. And the reason was because it was a servant killing their master. That was the criminal (laughs) thing. But there was still that mentality, I think, about a woman who disrespected her husband or killed her husband or cheated on her husband. Like, they owned her. While she's in prison, obviously she has a daughter who is basically an orphan at this point. Um, both parents or both grandparents fight for her of custody eventually goes to Josephine, Ruth's mom who lived with them, mm-hmm. uh, during that period. So there was also this whole debate about the life insurance policies, by the way. Right. Lorraine is now the beneficiary of those. One of the policies does get paid out, but that money is quickly eaten up by legal fees oh. as they try to get the other policies. Eventually they end up with nothing. <gasps> like they're bankrupt and they don't get the other two policies that to pay out. That sucks. At some point, Ruth in prison writes a letter to her daughter uh, that the mom is to give her when she's old enough to understand, but no one really knows if Lorraine ever read the letter or what the letter said, and no one really knows what happened to Lorraine. There's, like, no evidence. Like, there's nothing about her life after this happened. I'd be pissed if I was Lorraine. So Ruth does appeal for clemency. The first appeal is actually to Theodore Roosevelt, who was then the governor of New York. He at some point said a woman is deserving of the same blame as a man in early January as the lawyers keep throwing up delays, but they're running out of options. They send a new appeal to the governor at the time, Al Smith. And he says that the process, like he basically says that the prospect of executing a woman was very distasteful to him. And he had hoped that an appeal would contain some new evidence or grounds that he could overrule the execution, but that just never happens, so he doesn't uh, give her clemency or whatever. Okay, the big date that I was talking about, January 12th, 1928. uh, Judd Gray is executed first in the electric chair. He is said to be smiling in his cell when the warden came for him. He had received at some point a letter from his wife forgiving him. He told the warden that he was ready to go and that he had nothing to fear. Now, Ruth Snyder followed her lover just minutes after she saw the prison lights flicker, signaling that the switch had been thrown for the electric chair for Judd. That must be really fucking scary to see. So she knows he's just been executed and now it's her turn. According to witnesses, Ruth goes to the chair very calmly, although some newspapers want to, like, 
give it a moralistic ending. They describe her as in a flood of tears and that she's throwing hysterics and da da da. Like they make it like she's having this big come to Jesus whatever right. moment at the end. Um, but I don't think that that was the case. Apparently, uh, this is like a news story. So I don't know if it's true. They said that her last words were, Father, forgive them. They know what, not what they do. So I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, maybe it's true because it's a little snarky towards them, right? I think she probably said nothing. Yeah. So that might have been part of her, uh, the lies that they told about her. She uh, sits in the electric chair, and after two minutes of coursing electricity, she is dead. Um, as I said earlier, she is the first woman to be executed at Sing Sing since Martha Place was electrocuted in 1899. By the way, I looked up Martha Place. Uh, she was the first woman ever executed for killing somebody. She killed her stepdaughter, Ida. Whoa. And it was an insane story. I was reading about it. She actually, she killed her with an ax. She attacked her husband at the same time with an ax. And when they found Ida's body in the bed, her eyes were all disgusting because she had thrown acid <gasps> in the stepdaughter's face at some point oh. during the murder. So her eyes were all like melted and like whatever, oh like God. the guy who lived in the crypt. One detail that's sort of unique about the story, there was a major concert controversy that occurred after the execution. So the editors of the New York Daily News, by the way, who were like massively covering this story from day one, yeah. it was like their big thing. They wanted to get something, an exclusive thing that no one else got. So they knew that Sing Sing guards were familiar with all of their reporters. So they got in a reporter from like one of their sister papers, a man named Tom Howard, who worked for the Chicago Tribune. And they wanted him to go as an undercover reporter to the execution. Howard was a photographer and he strapped a single use camera to his right angle that had a wired, a trigger release up his pant leg. When Snyder's body shook from the jolt, he pressed the shutter release, exposing the plate. Um, the image basically captures her. She's in motion during the execution. It's like from a slightly angled thing. Cause it's just his foot. Like he's like covering this up. The, the photo is kind of blurry, but obviously this photo is like an insane thing to capture. He couldn't even see like where it was angled. Like do he had like one shot to get this picture right. on his ankle, angling it where no one could notice what he was doing. It's a good photo. Like it's an amazing photo. So we'll it's a post it. Photo of her <laughs> in the electric chair right as the first jolt <gasps> hits. That's terrifying. It's scary because the, the the blurriness of the photo actually like adds to it because it looks like it's in motion. Right. She probably jerked. I mean, it's crazy. Like he had one chance to get this photo and he got it. So. The morning after the execution, this photo is the front fucking page of the oh Daily News with a headline that simply reads, dead, exclamation point. <gasps> and it sells out in 15 minutes, this newspaper. Wow. Um, it was instantly hailed as the most famous tabloid photo of the decade. And it's a pretty shocking photo. Um, her, like, it's creepy because you see this electric hair. Her fingers are, like, curled <gasps> around the um, armrest. Howard was given a hundred dollar bonus for the photo, and this actually changed prison procedure <laughs> in a drastic way. You had to be like thoroughly searched now when you were entering the execution that room is or like the viewing room. Ghoulish. Um, the camera is actually now part of the Smithsonian's uh, National Museum of American History. Here's a weird side note: this guy, the photographer Tom Howard, his grandson is actor George Went. 
And his great-grandson is comedian Jason Sudeikis. Oh. Did you know Jason Sudeikis and George Went were related? No. That's... Jason Sudeikis' mother is George Wendt's sister. What? I know. When I saw this, I was like, holy shit. I, I feel like I might have heard that, but I have forgotten. I like Jason Sudeikis. Uh, and now, and then, so this is like, Howard is George Wendt's mother's, or like, I can't remember. Yeah, his mother's father or something like that. That's wild. So that was like a weird, another weird Hollywood connection. Okay, so... Obviously, we talked up earlier that the most famous product of this murder is the movie Double Indemnity by James Kane, and it's directed by Willie, um, I'm sorry, Billy Wilder. That came out in 1944. The screenplay is actually written by Raymond Chandler. Um, yeah. So it's like, it's got some It's very famous. Cred. As I mentioned before, the, the movie Postman Always Rings, rings Twice. Uh, in the movie, or in the book, The Bad Seed, uh, the the depiction of Bessie Denker's execution was based <gasps> on Ruth Snyder. Really? Yeah. And uh, in the Guns N' Roses uh, Use Your Illusion albums feature, like an enclosed artwork, the band is posing in front of an oversized reproduction of the photo of her execution. Oh. I wonder if that's why in Welcome to the Jungle he's in the electric chair. Remember in the video? Yeah. Um, okay. So just like a little... Just a little bit, I'm going to go into the movie and how it was kind of different. Uh, obviously, both of these people die in real life. In the novella by James Cain, um, in, the, in the novella, he actually shells, sells insurance and not corsets. Right. Um, they escape on a boat to Latin America, and then he, or he escapes on a boat to Latin America and finds her on the boat, too. And they're afraid they're going to be caught since newspapers have made this crime a sensation. And they both commit suicide by jumping overboard at night. In the film version of Double Indemnity, the salesman kills the girlfriend. Um, and he's, like, injured in the confrontation. And he waits for the police to take him away. So it seems like in all of them, they kind of get their penalty in well, some way. Well, I mean, and that's why they changed the bad seed. I mean, in, right. the, in those days, you had to have a moralistic ending. I mean, a lot of the times in movies, you had to have this, okay, well, the bad person got their just desserts. That's why the ending of the bad seed is different than in the book. Right, because they wanted to see the girl get spanked. <laughs> Well, that's well, the not ending the ending. Too, but yeah. then they had to add and that we won't, extra. We thing. won't add a spoil. We're not going to spoil it because everyone, if you haven't seen the bad seed, it's my favorite movie of all time. Yeah, you I should love watch it. it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of other differences in the movie. Barbara Stanwyck, or the character she plays, uh, Phyllis, I think her name is. She she's actually cheating on the salesman in the movie with her daughter's boyfriend. Like they have a hookup. Yeah. Uh, he kind of turns on her, like. It's definitely different, and when you read like the synopsis of the movie or when you watch the movie, it's definitely way more interesting <laughs> than the real story because there's definitely much more back and forth. Uh, he gets duped so many times. Yeah, um, I like the idea too that they made him an insurance salesman because he's definitely like I know how to do this. Right, and there's a whole um, I don't know if it's a B storyline with Edward Edward G. Robinson where he's like suspicious, but the guy works with him as an insurance salesman yeah. so he knows all the tricks and he can tell like when he's really on to something or when he's off down the wrong path and he can be really excited so basically when he finds out this bitch is cheating on him with the uh daughter's boyfriend that's when he decides to like let the boyfriend take the fall because the edward g robinson character is suspicious that the boyfriend might have done it so this guy's like okay <laughs> like so it's like definitely like this good back and forth i'm not going to give it all away 
but it's a great movie. Yeah, it's I mean, a it's really a classic film noir. It's like. One, it's probably the best film noir. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of good ones, but this is definitely up there. And she's great. Yeah, and she's bo- everyone so in this great movie in is amazing, and it just looks great. I just love. It's the scene. one of those movies that you watch today, and it still holds up. I say some of the lines from it all the time. Like I've said several times to people, like guys, where I'm like, I'm rotten. <laughs> like. <laughs> Just like whatever bastardizing lines. It's right. Like, I love their little banter. Yeah. They like both know each other's like garbage, but they're still into it. Like, and she's just so cool with her sunglasses and the blonde hair. Some that of the, when they're in the store, like, I can't remember. Some of the now. looks in this movie are so good from Stanwyck. This was like a huge trial in 1927, but now it's just like a footnote. Like, right. I feel like people know the things that it inspired more right. than the actual story. Right. And that is pretty much it. Wow. That was a good story. Oh, good. Did you know a lot of it? I knew nothing about it. I mean, I know the movie. I love the movie, but I knew nothing about the case. Yeah. So. I didn't even know it was real till this week. I don't think, I think I learned it was real recently too. I can't remember. Maybe when I was just looking for movies that were based on crimes uh, or something, I I happened upon it. But yeah. It's a good good one. Yeah. It's a really good one. Okay. Great. Cool. All right. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Okay, bye. Bye.